Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Implicit Bias Among Providers Treating Patients with Chronic Pain. Your faculty this morning is Dr. Jay Joshi with the Burden of Pain. As a reminder, any APA psychology learners, there are fresh sign-out sheets, two on my right, two on my left, so make sure to sign out. We also always have sheets at the CME desk. Um, I'll now turn things over to Dr. Joshi. Okay. Thank you for having me. Hello, welcome, and good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Today we're gonna to discuss a very important topic that's now receiving the recognition that is long deserved, and that is implicit bias among providers treating patients with chronic pain. But rather than discuss some of the topics on disparities, we're gonna take a unique approach, focusing less on the science of medicine and more on its art. Disclosures, nothing to disclose. Now for today, I wanna to highlight three main points, but more than just the points itself, I wanna emphasize a change in thinking on how we deal with patients with chronic pain. A change that begins not with a clinical study, not with any data points, but in how we think. Because the way we think affects the clinical decisions we make. And if there's a key takeaway we wanna get from today, it would be that one point. And so today, we wanna to first understand the philosophy of pain. I know many of you scientifically oriented individuals probably never would imagine you'd hear the word philosophy at a pain week conference, but bear with me and we'll touch on that. We want to recognize patterns of thoughts about pain because the way we treat our patients reflects our internal cognition of pain itself. And then finally, we want to identify when we have certain patterns that lead to clinical decisions because our own self-awareness is a key driving factor to the overall patient decision-making and subsequently patient outcomes. So let's talk a little bit about pain itself. Pain has a very complex history. And for many of us in the medical field, we deal with pain in a very unique medical lens. We fail to realize that that is a very novel perspective of pain. For centuries, really, for eons, we have been looking at pain in ways that are anything but medical. And as the poet John Milton said, pain is perfect misery, the worst of evil. This is from his famous poem, Paradise Lost. And what he was talking about when he discussed pain was not a medical condition, not a symptom, but really the moralization of pain. And that pain equates to some degree of right or wrong. Now today, we may think of that as an antiquated notion when we mention that out loud. But we have to understand that we're not too far away from those subtle forms of thinking about pain. And when we look at pain, we tend to look at it in that pairing, good versus bad, suffering versus the relief of suffering. And in many ways, these are non-clinical pairings but it's fundamental to understanding why implicit biases form about pain, because we intrinsically couple pain to two sets of emotions, often clinical and non-clinical. The most common way we look at pain today is through the lens of pain and suffering. We love to judge pain. Pain is good, pain is bad. That pain is deserved, that pain is undeserved. Think about how many times we moralize our own and other people's pain. We try to put the veneer 
of clinical context upon it. But it is anything but that. Because we have to realize how many forces of influence come into our perspective of pain. Take the Stoic philosophers. For them, pain was something to endure. And the ability to endure pain was a sign of strength. Good. The inability to handle pain was a sign of weakness. Bad. In Christian contexts, which influence much of our society today, pain had its own context. Pain, a source of evil. Lack of pain, a source of good. And if we don't think that influences how we look at medicine today, I would challenge you to look at 19th century Victorian philosophy, particularly the way they looked at diseases. Consumption, commonly known as tuberculosis today, was considered an attractive disease. Why? Because it did not impart pain upon the patient. And that's how we look at pain. And it's important for us to understand that even in this modern, scientific, technologically sound world that we perceive ourselves to live in, pain is subjective. And I know many of you might be thinking, pain is not subjective. I quantify pain. I perform a proper physical exam, and I do all my checks, balances, guidelines, what have you. Everything is down to the T. Well, let's take the most common example of that, the pain scale, right? The almighty pain scale. What is your pain on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most pain you've ever experienced in your life, and 1 being no pain at all? Often we put these numbers into the clinical notes, document it, and then the administrator overlords are pleased with their quantification of pain, and we move on. But we never really think about that number. What is that number? So if I see a patient, I say, what is your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? And patient A says, it's a 5 out of 10. Okay. Patient B says, it's a 7 out of 10. What is the difference between a 5 and a 7? That is a subjective assessment of a number. But we don't think of it that way. We simply take the number and we just move on with it. Now, I know many of you might be saying, well, of course that's true. That's why we have to add additional context. We're going to add functionality to the pain scale. We're going to add additional context to the numbers, help educate the patient and the provider to create some degree of standardization. Sure. Ultimately, you're falling into Zeno's paradox because the more and more data, the more and more quantification you try to put into those numbers, the more points of perceptions you're putting in. And that's the key thing to recognize here. There's pain, and there is the perception of pain, forever linked. And the more we try to go towards the data, the more perceptions we put into it. So when we see patients in the clinical encounter, it's nice to think of this way in theory. It's nice to say, of course, I'm going to look at every patient to the fullest degree, analyze his or her socioeconomic status, go through all of these functionality scores, and really understand why the patient is presenting with the pain as he or she is. It's nice in theory, but realistically, it's very difficult given the time constraints and the economic constraints of the modern healthcare system. What I think we need to focus on instead, instead of knee-jerk context or some overly grandiose theoretical framework, is to really recontextualize how we look at pain through a degree of self-awareness. And so there's three key things I want to focus on. One, understanding, recognizing, and appreciating.
understanding how thoughts appear. When we see a patient and that patient says, I present with pain, what is the first thought that comes to our mind? The color of their skin, their gender, how they present themselves. What comes to our mind? What is that understanding? Second thing is recognizing what we balance. What do we mean by balance? And this is the term I want to highlight subsequent, subsequent parts of the presentation. Balance the emotions, the pair of the emotions, good, bad, deserved, undeserved, righteous, unrighteous. How are we balancing the emotions that go into the perceptions of pain? And I use the word recognize deliberately because it's recognizate, right? Readjust the thoughts that appear through that understanding. And then appreciate the uncertainty. Develop a contrarian approach to the differential diagnosis. Medical students are taught this all the time. Why do we need to order this test? Why do we need to order this additional imaging study? We're taught to think as contrarians. But once we get into the medical field, indeed, once all providers get into the medical field, we default to our heuristics, our dispositions, our default tendencies. Instead, we need to focus on the uncertainty. Now, what do I mean by that? What are these terms, balance, uncertainty? What is the context around this? Now, I told you we're going to focus on the art of medicine. I'm sure many of you didn't think I was going to take that literally. But what we have here is a Euler-Venn diagram. Most of you are familiar with the Venn diagrams from elementary school, where you see blue and red in the forms of color. Well, the concept comes from mathematicians who develop logic frameworks for understanding how things correlate. I think that's an important framework for us to understand pain in the clinical context and how we as providers diagnose and treat pain. What I have here are three, let's just say, thought bubbles. Make it simple. It's a little too early to think too hard in the morning. Let's just call them thought bubbles. What you see here is uncertainty. These are our thoughts of uncertainty. Is that patient really presenting with pain? That person looks a little bit odd. She's speaking very emotionally. I'm not sure what to make of this. And what you see here is two separate bubbles that actually have formed thought. What you see on one side is patient with chronic pain. What you see on the other side is a patient with addiction. Now, I deliberately put it in this context, given so much of the legal influence in the treatment of pain and how it affects the balances that we create. No longer are we looking at pain as just good or bad, deserved or undeserved. We're also looking at pain as is it worth the legal liability? And that's a very rough thing to say. Think about that for a second. Are we balancing the legal justification of treating a patient with the actual care a patient deserves? Well, if we're being honest with the uncertainty frameworks that we look at patients with pain, we have to say yes. So now let's look at this a little bit further, a little more granularly. The way we think occurs in two steps. And this is a concept popularized by behavioral economics such as uh, Daniel Kahneman and others. The idea is that we begin our thoughts 
out of a framework of uncertainty, and then we develop a perception out of that uncertainty. A 65-year-old African-American male comes in with diabetes and sickle cell, presenting with pain exacerbations, has a history of taking certain high-risk or stigmatized medications. Is a patient really worsening pain? Has a patient developed a tolerance to the pain that justifies a shift in the pain medications? These are all thoughts that form as we see the patient. Initially, we don't know, and then we develop perceptions. Sure, we may order imaging studies. We may try to look for inflammatory markers. But ultimately, as I showed earlier, that's data, and those are additional forms of perception to complement the data. Let's contextualize this a little bit further. Two scenarios. One on the top, we take our uncertainty and we then determine the patient has chronic pain. The one on the bottom, we take our uncertainty and we make the decision that the patient has an addiction. The reason why there's a second arrow that's more or less orthogonal or going sideways is again going to the notion that pain appears as a pair of emotions, an addiction that's justified, an addiction that's not justified. Chronic pain that deserves a change in management, chronic pain that doesn't deserve a change in management. Even when we form perceptions, we're modifying those perceptions. It's fundamentally iterative because our mind is constantly adjusting how we think. These bubbles that you see here, they're anything but static. They're very dynamic interplays of mind that we're just simplifying to understand how uncertainty forms the perceptions. Now, in this scenario, I added multiple perceptions, multiple arrows. What you see here is an individual who begins with a certain perception, saying, I don't know what I see, but I've developed a perception. And then arrow after arrow after arrow, the patient then develops a different perception. This is important to understand because it's the genesis of implicit bias. Let's take a look at these circles again and look at it a little more carefully. Where do the circles overlap? Why do they overlap? When we looked at those elementary school Venn diagrams, a point of overlap indicated a certain similarity or a certain framework of thought that align. In the same vein, when you see these circles overlap, they indicate something. And in this model, and in the model that was used originally when the mathematicians developed this, this overlap here represents subconscious uncertainty that's forming a perception. We're not quite sure, but we think we might know. What this develops right here is one of the things that we as providers dread the most. Conscious uncertainty. Conscious ambiguity. I don't know. Now, just ask any physician going through medical school residency, if you were asked a question and you were to say, I don't know, what would happen to your career? What would happen to you that day? And that goes for pharmacists, nurse practitioners, anybody in the healthcare field. We dread this more than we dread most other things in our professional lives. But the irony of the matter is, 
that's where we start to understand implicit bias. Let's take a look at some clinical studies because, of course, this is an academic society, so we have to be clinical in nature, right? We can't just use mathematical frameworks and drawings all day. This study is from 2022, and it highlights one of the many studies that highlight disparities, inequities, and all the buzzwords that we see in modern healthcare today. Effectively, what it's saying is that implicit biases lead to disparities in outcomes. We see this when we talk about race, when we talk about gender, when we talk about patients of different socioeconomic status. But we never quite understand the nuances around it. We simply look at it in broad terms and say, well, from a policy level, these are the disparities that we see. But what about at the individual level? This is one of the few studies that I was able to find back from 2014, so it's a little bit dated, where it talks about implicit bias at the individual provider level. So now we're going down from data sets to the individual provider. And in here, they talk about things that are quite different, not about analyzing statistical significance of data sets and then making uh, more or less a self-aware analysis of racial or gender or any form of disparity. And here they talk about implicit and unconscious levels of biases that form principally when there are stigmatizing conditions. And what's very interesting about this study and what they highlight is that the level of bias is greatest at the points in which the conditions or the treatments are most stigmatizing. So what does that mean? It means that our biases are greater when we begin to couple emotions that are less clinical in nature. A patient needs methadone for his chronic pain? I don't know, I think maybe I should refer that to another physician, or maybe I should order some more tests, or maybe I should document that I did a urine drug screen and checked his prescription record history, you know, put all those bells and whistles in case something happens. Is that really balancing what's in the best need of the patient? No, but these are important balancing considerations that we all go through, and if we're being honest with ourselves, we have to elucidate why we think it that way. But more importantly, if we were to take these two studies in tandem, this study, again, one of the many studies on implicit biases that look at broad data sets and finds disparities exist, no doubt. And then this study here that looks at it at a more individualized level, what does it really tell us about how we look at implicit bias? We study, we pour over the effects of implicit biases. But in order to understand implicit biases, we have to focus on the causes. So many of these studies that talk about the disparities and inequities, they focus on the effects and try to find solutions based on the effects. Today, I challenge everybody here to look at implicit biases by its causes. And when we look at implicit biases by its causes, we can begin to find biases begin Thank you. Implicit biases begin at the individual level. So let's do some more circles, huh? How about that? In this scenario here, I emphasize the most important aspect of the patient-physician encounter, the patient-provider encounter, and that is trust. And what you see here are two different scenarios. Let's go through this step-by-step, step, and I hope you can see the top. So right here you see trust, no trust. Again, this is 
the provider trust. Here, trust, no trust, and the patient trust here. Now what I have here are two different scenarios, top to bottom, and then top to bottom, and you'll see the line demarcating. So you have scenario one, and you have scenario two. In scenario one, what you see here is that the provider begins by defaulting to trust. Let's take any clinical scenario. 37-year-old Caucasian female comes in with the purse full of Vicodins claiming that her daughter stole her medications and that she needs some more medications. Are we going to trust the patient or are we not going to trust the patient? Is that a bizarre scenario or is it something that we've encountered many times at county hospitals throughout the country? In the top scenario, what you see in the trust. And then over time saying, well, this doesn't quite make sense or this part of the story doesn't make much sense. Talk to me. Explain to me why you're presenting the way you are and what is your clinical story. If the story doesn't add up through the conversation, the provider eventually says, hey, something kind of doesn't make much sense here. And what happens is then the patient starts to say, hey, you know what? Even though you don't quite trust me at the end, you do trust me a little bit, and I'll be honest with you. And the other scenario, which is what we see more commonly in a litigious form of modern healthcare, is that the provider defaults to distrusting, simply saying, whoa, you have all the quote-unquote red flags. I'm not touching you with a 10-feet pole. Let's have somebody else come in, or let me just wait till the next shift when somebody else can take care of you. And in this scenario, the patient is required to prove or verify his or her trust. And in situations like that, what you'll see is a greater shift in the perceptions that form. Whereas in here, there's a smaller shift, and here there will be a greater shift. And then you're dealing with two scenarios in which the provider doesn't trust the patient, the patient doesn't trust the provider, and each are just basically trying to game the other to try to get what they want. The provider just wants to document whatever he or she needs to and move on. The patient wants whatever he or she wants and move on. This is a very common scenario that many of us encounter. It's something that we all see, but we rarely want to discuss. And it's something that we need to start to understand more and more in the treatment of chronic pain, because it's where implicit biases form. So let's contextualize this into something that's more realistic. Let's say we're dealing with that 35-year-old woman who comes in with a bag full of Vicodin. Perhaps she really has a dependency. Perhaps she really needs some form of treatment aside from just the continuation of medication. In a scenario like this, we should continue to treat the patient, but we should make the right decisions so that we don't lose this patient to the, me to the medical system. In many sense, what would happen is, let's say the patient now realizes that, hey, I don't need Vicodin. I might need something else. And if the patient feels like the provider is trusting her and respecting her, she may be more inclined to switch to something like buprenorphine or another medication that emphasizes harm reduction while treating her pain, but putting a cap on the euphoric component that can come from taking the pain medications. Now, in the other scenario, if the provider simply says, I'm not touching you, you are a chronic pain patient to develop a dependency, the DEA is going to put me in prison, I don't want to deal with you. And in that situation, 
the patient may recognize that, hey, there really was no trust. At least I can trust my drug dealer. Now, this may seem like a very stark scenario, but I will remind you, when you look at the data, you'll see decreasing prescription opioids and rising overdose deaths with ever-increasing potency of the opioids and synthetic opioids that are available. This scenario is far more common than we'd like to imagine. The only thing is that we don't contextualize it that way because we choose to pair other forms of emotions around this and conveniently sidestep the context instead of looking at it in its proper light. Now, you guys may be asking, how are these arrows forming? I'm giving the presentation, so maybe I can just adjust them however I like. And fair enough. But there's something to those arrows that go beyond just how they're drawn out. And that has to do with how implicit biases is not an isolated construct, but rather it is a dialectic. It is a conversation non-verbally that happens between two individuals. Now, psychologists and behavioral economics have all these fancy terms for it. Critical reflexivity is one term that's used, which essentially emphasizes that the nonverbal cues you disseminate reflect in the nonverbal cues that are given back to you. In kindergarten terms, it's basically how you treat others is how people treat you. And I think we have to understand that in the context of implicit biases, because implicit bias is not just a one-way street, something that happens in isolation. Implicit bias is something that happens bilaterally. Now, there are fancy terms for this, transference, counter-transference. We don't need to know those terms because in a clinical context, we don't have time for multiple syllables. We have time for quick clinical decisions made in the right context. And what we need to understand is that the biases we impart reflect the biases that are given onto us. That's why the arrows correlate. That's why when one arrow starts to form in a certain direction, we start to see the counter arrows form in the other direction as well. So now that we understand that implicit biases needs to be understood in its cause, not its an effect, and that implicit biases is bilateral, let's use another framework to help understand how implicit biases affect clinical decisions. This is from the behavioral theory of game theory. Now, most of you are familiar with game theory because it's been popularized in recent years. But the basic premise is seen in the prisoner's dilemma, where two individuals are captured by the police, accused of committing a crime, put in separate jail cells. They're each told if they confess on the other, they'll be, the individual that confesses will be let go, and the one who doesn't confess will have a longer prison time. Now, ideally, neither should confess against one another. In reality, they both confess against each other. Now, what that highlights is a dynamic of individuals versus the group. There is an inherent conflict between how we think as individuals and how we think as a group. In the context of a clinical encounter, there is a conflict between how the patient and the physician think and how the implicit biases are formed and formed against one another in any high-pressure, low-pressure clinical scenario. And here, what we have is a 4x4 matrix, and this is 
a little bit technical, so I want to explain a little bit, but I think it serves an important point. What you see here on the top is the patient, and on the side, the physician. You see a patient in one scenario perceived, and I use this word strongly, perceived, to have legitimate chronic pain. And here is one that's a malingering addict with ill intent. The physician makes a decision to prescribe or not prescribe. So two scenarios, the perception of the patient and the clinical decision to prescribe or not prescribe. Now, what are these numbers? I mean, most of us went into healthcare because we don't like math. So the numbers are kind of like, well, what are we doing over here? Well, the numbers are what's called payoffs. Now, payoff is a perceived value that's gleaned. So if I win, let's say, a game of blackjack and I win $10, the perceived value of that game would be $10. If I lose $10, the perceived value of that game would be negative 10. So positive numbers imply a positive benefit and negative numbers imply a negative benefit. So let's walk through this scenario because it's essential understanding how implicit biases correlate. In this scenario here, the physician gets the most benefit from not prescribing pain medications. And in this scenario here for the patient, the patient would get a balance of benefit in receiving pain medications if it's a legitimate chronic pain patient and not receiving if it's a malingering. So you can see that in this scenario, these two outcomes are relatively equal from the perception of the patient. But from the perception of the physician, the greatest benefit is to not prescribe pain medications. Now again, this is a default tendency. So now let's look at the numbers on the right, which correlate to that of the patient. Now for the patient perspective, this is the greatest outcome that's gleaned to receive the pain medications because this would be a patient that has legitimate chronic pain. So in this scenario, what we see is the effect of perception of distrust on the physician and the effect of not being able to receive chronic pain medications on the patient. So the most likely scenario would be one that the physician does not trust the patient and the patient has the worst possible outcome with legitimate pain and not receiving pain medications. Yeah. In this scenario, it would just be a one-to-one -one correlate. So the payoffs would just be the perceived benefits that we would get in a scenario such as one where the physician distrusts the patient. Now I can give another example in which the physician trusts the patients. And you can see the payoffs are much different. And in this scenario, you see the payoffs align much more. And in here, yeah, these are numbers that I've created. It's based upon perceived benefit, perceived value, and perceived loss. In this scenario, you see the most likely outcome favors both the patient and the physician. This is, go ahead. I'm sorry, this is what would happen in a scenario in which a patient is trusted and the patient presents himself in a way that he is perceived to be trusted by the physician. So again, these are correlations that reflect the bilateral nature of implicit biases, but also demonstrate how the perception of pain lead to the eventual clinical decisions that are being made. So the question then becomes, 
how do we create the payoff models? How do we create the perceptions in a way where they align for the patient's best interest and the physician's best interest? Now, to best understand that question, we have to first study the converse of that question and what happens when the physician makes the wrong decision or a decision that's not in the patient's best interest. And that would be what's called an attribution error. Patient needed chronic pain medications. The physician didn't trust the patient. The patient left without receiving chronic pain medications. The way to avoid attribution error is to, again, go back to understanding how we make clinical decisions. Again, we look at pain as a pair of emotions. So any clinical decision is never made in isolation. We so rely upon the pain scale, imaging studies, blood work, are really just additional forms of perception that influence the decisions that we make. So there's a distinction between data and decisions. And lastly, the context of the decision is as important as the decision itself. As we saw in the payoff models, trusting the patient will lead to a different perceived payoff structure leading to different clinical decisions for the patient. So let's transition a little bit and look at another clinical study. Attribution error is something that we should highlight a little more closely because it kind of culminates in what we talked about with these Euler-Venn diagrams and the game theory payoff structure. What this study shows us, again, is we have a spontaneous process of reflexively considering our default tendencies. The irony of healthcare is that we are encouraged to think in default tendencies. If a patient presents with right lower quadrant pain, elevated, white, elevated WBC, and emesis or vomiting, we're likely going to think appendicitis. It's default thinking. It's how medical school questions are structured. It's how the grand rounds in residency are developed. And it is how we are taught to think. But the strength in that thinking also creates a weakness in attribution errors. And that's the deadly aspect of implicit biases. The way we are taught creates an opportunity for implicit biases to form. And until we start to recognize the uncertainty in our default tendencies, we're going to succumb to attribution errors that are a result of our implicit biases. There's no data that's going to show us that. There's no grandiose data set scale or randomized clinical study that's going to show this. But it's something that we know to be true. And the analogy I like to give is that of an atom. We focus so much on the nucleus of the atom. But the actual behavior of the atom is influenced by the electrons orbiting that amorphous space that we can't quite characterize or quantify. Think of the patient encounter in the same way. The data is there, but what influences the data is the implicit biases that form in the exchange of perceptions between the provider and the patient. So let's talk about now solutions. Now, I know many of you might be looking at the word nudge and think, 
he did all this to go back to something I heard about 10 years ago that didn't work? Well, just bear with me on this. I know many in the health policy world believe that we live in a post-nudge world and that nudges have limited benefits. And I would agree with that, with how nudges were used previously. The way we look at nudges in healthcare is very limited. It's, did you order the mammogram? Did you order the pain scale? Did you order the urine drug screen? These blanket reminders that we either choose to listen to or just default to ignoring. That's not how nudges should work. In fact, that's not how nudges were intended to work. Instead, nudges should prompt a way of thinking. And therefore, the irony of implicit biases is that the solution is not an answer, but in structuring questions that focus on raising awareness, focus on challenging the way we think. And when we start to raise questions that challenge the way we think, we start to understand the inherent uncertainty that are culminating in our implicit biases. So let's go through a few examples. Let's look at the first question here. First question is very simple. Do you prescribe medically indicated opioids for your patient? Yes, no. Not much thought into it. But then look at the second question. Do you feel comfortable discussing your concerns about prescribing opioids to your patients? That's a little more tricky of a question, isn't it, right? Because it's now challenging us to think how we encounter some of the more difficult patients we may come in our day-to-day -day practice. Do we skirt through the issue? Do we simply just have the MA, have the tough question while we move on to the next patient? These are all concerns that we need to start to raise awareness of by asking us questions at the right time. Let me present a little, go ahead. Very true, right. Outside of the scope of medicine, some of the legal terms, particularly when we talk about the Supreme Court ruling on Rwanda v. United States, I would fully agree with you on that. I appreciate you bringing that up. Let's talk about this pairing of questions here because it's a little bit more tricky and deals with layers of perception. How easy is it for you to obtain imaging studies and urine drug screens for your patients who are prescribed opioids? Now, many of you may say, oh, it's very easy. Whenever I need them, I can get them. Or some of you may say, well, you know, the system is very bureaucratic. Sometimes I can get them, sometimes I can. It all depends on who's on the other line of the phone when I make that call. Second question is, have you ever decided not to prescribe opioids or to prescribe a lower dose of opioids because you do not have access to imaging studies or urine drug screens? Now, here's a very interesting question because they're kind of similar in how they're structured, but one focuses on the negative. One will say, if you don't have that, would you make a different decision? And that's something we need to be aware of in dealing with patients with pain, particularly when everything is quantified. As you had mentioned, the language itself is parsed through detail by detail. And you have people who, quite frankly, have little to no clinical knowledge with the legal sphere looking at how the wording is phrased. That's important for us to understand because the negation can also create unique perceptions as well. And what these questions are intended to do is to really emphasize additional layers of awareness. We all have a certain understanding that we know what we know and we know what we don't know or at least we think we don't know. But many of us are very unaware of what we don't know. That's human nature. It's how our minds are constructed. But by asking these questions and structuring them in a way that prompts a heightened level of awareness, we can create the perceptions we need to identify what biases are formed out of the uncertainty. So for me, 
structuring questions is a great way to raise awareness. For you, it could be something different. It can be something you do before clinic as you start to parse through the patients that you have. But whatever it is, it must focus on identifying default thought patterns. What we think when we see a female patient, a male patient, a patient that's well-dressed, an unkempt one. What are the thought patterns that form and create questions that can challenge those default tendencies? Because heuristics are nice when we're looking at clinical conditions, but heuristics are limited when we're looking at the entire patient. And in the treatment of pain, as we so painfully realize, is so much more than just the medical context. It's societal in nature, as clinical as it is non-clinical. So we need to understand when we're asking these questions as much as what we're asking these questions so we know at the time of the patient encounter how we're dealing with that patient. So with that, I'd like to focus on key takeaways. Focus on the perception of pain. There is pain and the perception of pain, forever interlinked. Become aware of the uncertainty as we're dealing with patients with pain and look at the coupling of emotions that center around the treatment of pain and evaluate the clinical judgment of the patients non-clinically as much as you are clinically so that you're aware of the emotions that are forming and how you're pairing the context of thought around the patients. So, some possible solutions. For me, there were structured questions at the time of the patient encounter. For you, it can be something different, but I would encourage all of you to take principles from behavioral economics and incorporate that into clinical decisions. Once you start to do that, you'll understand that every clinical decision is an opportunity cost. Something must occur in order for something not to occur. And when you look at it in that way, you see that how much of what you don't do is as important as what you do. And as I said beginning of this presentation, we're focusing on the art of medicine more so than the science of medicine when we're dealing with pain. Look at non-traditional methods of treating the patient. Look at non-traditional methods of evaluating your clinical decision-making. These are all important factors when you're dealing with the clinical condition that has blown outside of the clinical realm and become a societal problem. And lastly, I would encourage all of you to develop protocols, procedures that focus on raising awareness, challenging the assumptions that you make when you are creating decisions for treating patients so that you can standardize not the decisions you make, but you standardize the way you think. And how we think about patients with chronic pain determines the decisions we make and consequently the patient outcomes. And with that, I'd like to thank everybody for their time. Questions? I'm sorry, go, go ahead, ma'am. So one of the models I'm creating is a, a system of prospective and retrospective nudges. So I would ask questions before the clinical encounter to myself and then retrospectively ask questions to both myself and to the patient. So a prospective question would be, if the patient doesn't have the imaging studies that I ordered prior to the encounter, am I gonna treat the patient differently? Am I gonna make a different clinical decision as a result of that? Now, given the world of insurance and coverage issues that many patients face, Oftentimes, I'll default to giving a patient a month or two months, but if it's been three, four, five, six months, and you're simply trying to order an x-ray imaging study, that then raises questions. And so then retrospectively, you'd ask yourself, 
is my decision based off of trust or a lack of oversight? And one of the points that the gentleman over here had mentioned is looking at the terminology legally. You mentioned medically indicated or medically appropriate. That's a big legal buzzword. Another one would be within the scope of clinical practice. And as much as we try not to think of medicine through the legal veneer, we have to at least be aware of how that's being influenced in our clinical decision-making. So one of the questions we can ask is, is my trust justified after four or five months of the patient not receiving imaging studies, or can that trust be construed as a lack of oversight? And I think when you look at it in that way, you start to understand, hey, the decisions I'm making are not just decisions of my own, but rather they're decisions that are going to be evaluated through the lens of people who are looking at it non-clinically. So I try to look at things prospectively and retrospectively, at least within the immediate context of a patient encounter. I think they would add additional heuristics, additional biases, because they would reinforce default patterns. If we think about clinical decision-making and how AI influences it, we're effectively taking the decision-making apparatus in our brains and externalizing it to a set of algorithms. So the analogy I gave of appendicitis, three specific points that lead to the symptomatic diagnosis of appendicitis. Either we make that decision internally or we rely on the artificial intelligence mechanism to make it. But then there's an additional perception that forms is how much we trust that AI algorithm over our own internal trust mechanism as well. So I see, and again, this is maybe a cop-out of the question, but I see additional default tendencies forming as we increase the pace of decision-making. So we have to be aware of the biases that we're effectively enhancing through the AI mechanism. And we can do that. I'm not saying AI is entirely bad, but it's simply recognizing that they're reinforcing certain biases that we can mitigate against by creating awarenesses of those biases. No, I completely agree with you on that. And to his point, normal refers to the bell curve, the normal Gaussian distribution of how we look at outliers and abnormalities. The one obvious context in which that is now proving not to be true is BMI. When we looked at body mass index, we tried to create a bell curve, a normal curve, to then determine what is ideal body mass index. And we're starting to realize that different genetic predispositions, different cultural predilections, that all leads to different perceived BMI metrics that may be beneficial for some, but very hurtful for others. Yes, ma'am. No, that, that, that's a great point, and I'm really glad you mentioned that. I want to add some historical context around that. We all know about how pain was first perceived as the fifth vital sign back in the early 90s. What we don't realize is that there was an entire slew of clinical studies out there talking about the, in, the effects of the inflammatory effects of uncontrolled pain and how we really have to mitigate against that inflammatory effects. Now we're talking about the dependency effects of pain that's overly treated or pain that's inappropriately treated. Often what I find is that if you create that context and you show how we in the medical field are still evolving our understanding of pain, that often creates a certain level of trust in the patient where he or she would be more willing to endure a certain level of pain. And so instead of saying, I need Norco 10, 325 four times a day for a week straight, they may say, well, you know, some pain may be good. It'll help me understand how I'm rehabilitating. So maybe Norco 7, 5, 325 twice a day would be sufficient. I may still have some pain, but at least I'll understand how to manage my pain and I'll be able to use my pain as an indicator of improvement or of any sort of exacerbation. So really kind of contextualizing the evolving nature of pain in the healthcare realm helps to understand the evolving nature of pain in the patient. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.